Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me. I am Rick Thomas, and I'm grateful that you are here. This is Life Over Coffee. This is our coffee shop. Our coffee shop is a little bit unusual. It is a sanctification center where people come from all over the globe. Anyone that has access to the internet can come to our little coffee shop and enjoy our resources. All the resources, the products in our coffee shop are free, and so you're welcome to come and to peruse and to enjoy and to benefit. And we want you to bring a friend because our resources are not just for you. They're also for those who are important to you, those that you're interacting with on a day-to-day basis, because we believe that any two people can come together and they can do life over coffee. And so whatever your personal problem is, your situational difficulty, your relational struggle, get together with a friend, do life over coffee and use our resources in a supplemental way so that you can spur one another on to love and good deeds. Share lifeovercoffee.com with your friends. Tell them about this wonderful cyber coffee shop that has all of these great resources where we can do sanctification together. Now, in this particular episode, I want to share with you the secret to having a great relationship that lasts, not just lasts or endures like a prison sentence, uh, but it lasts with joy and satisfaction. And so as you think about an important relationship to you, What would be that secret? What would be that essential thing that you need in order to persevere in that relationship, in order to get through it? But again, not just an endurance contest, but to get through it with joy and satisfaction for you and that other person. What is that one thing that is absolutely essential? And so what I'm going to share with you applies to any important relationship that you have. It could be a marriage relationship, of course. It could be a child and a parent, parent, child. Uh, It could be any other relative or it could be not a non-relative, just an important friend to you. Now, I titled this episode is 432, and that's how you would find it in our podcast series. The title of 432 is The Secret to Having a Great Marriage That Lasts. But I'm only using marriage as a case study, okay? It's just a case study. Uh, You can apply what I'm going to share with you to any important relationship. So if you want a persevering relationship with someone, then you really have to have a proper aim in view. And so as you think about your most significant relationship, what is that singular secret to making it last with joy and fulfillment? Well, I want to go ahead and tell you what that secret is right at the top. I'm going to let it out uh, right up front here, and then I want to tease it out and unpack it as I move through it. And so here it is. If you want a relationship that will persevere with joy, fulfillment, satisfaction, then you must be always looking at the right goal. That's it. If you want to persevere with joy and fulfillment, satisfaction, then you always have to be looking at the right goal. You see, all of our relationships must have an eschatological component to them. 
you hear in the word eschatological, uh, that's end times, uh, that, that's talking about the future. And so all of our relationships that are meaningful have to have an eschatological component, meaning there is a goal that we're working toward. Now, if that goal is not right, if we're aiming toward the wrong thing, if we're going in the wrong direction, then that future goal is not right. And when we get there, well, the relationship won't last, and even the process to getting there will be difficult. Sometimes you'll hear of people who have been married for 10 years, 15, 20, 35 years, and they, they end up in divorce. When they get to a certain point, they realize that it's just not working, and you'll find in every singular case that it wasn't working in part because they were heading in the wrong direction. Therefore, it is absolutely essential that there is an eschatological component to all of our relationships, a proper eschatological component, future goal to make it meaningful and lasting. And so if you have a proper aim in view, you will experience persevering grace even as you navigate the relationship. Now, what I'm sharing with you not only applies to relationships, but it applies to any worthy objective. Think about something that you have done in your past and, and, and you've seen the fruition of it. You have come to uh, the objective of what you worked hard toward. Maybe it was getting through a, a degree program. Uh, maybe it was learning a hobby. Maybe it was learning a craft to uh, be on stage at your church and uh, doing music or whatever. Uh, maybe it was a job, a career path that you've taken. And it was hard to do it. But what gave you persevering grace is because you had this eschatological aim in view. There was this futuristic thing that you were looking toward, and, and, it, and it created like a gravitational pull that brought you through even those long nights when you were doing life over coffee by yourself as you're banging out this project or as your, your fingers are bleeding from uh, learning how to play the guitar because, again, you had this objective in mind. Well, relationships or any worthy objective must have that eschatological aim, the right eschatological aim in view, and it will create that gravitational pull. This is one of the things that I tell our mastermind students, that if you want to go through our program and not put it off and not kick the can down the road, not let other things come in and interfere with it, you really have to have a solid objective. There's a reason why you're doing this, and it is a compelling reason that pulls you through. And so the secret to having a relationship that not just lasts or endures, but you endure with joy and satisfaction and contentment. Even through the hard times, there is a shalom of the soul because you always have that objective in view. It pulls you through. Let me give you a text of Scripture. I want to give you several. But one of them that comes to mind is Hebrews 12, 2. You know this passage well. It goes like this, looking to Jesus. The writer is telling us to look to Jesus, to study Jesus, observe Jesus, 
the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, I'm not altogether sure what the joy was that was set before him, but it was compelling. Now, we have some ideas of of what that was. Of course, Jesus said that he came to do the will of his Father. The will of his Father was in part to redeem humanity. And and so there was this salvific uh, component to uh, what was before him and why he uh, endured the cross and despised the shame and now is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so you see in this text that there's this eschatological, this futuristic goal in mind, and because of what he was looking toward, he was able to endure, in this case, the cross, despising the shame, and it created that gravitational pull even through some of the harshest testing times that a person has ever gone through. In fact, the Garden of Gethsemane would be an excellent pericope to, to sit down in just for a moment and think about how gruesome that was, how painful that was from our spectating position, of course. We cannot imagine it in a visceral, real way. But as we read the narrative, we see this as one of the harshest testing times in the life of Christ just before his death. But see, he had the will of his Father as the objective. And he said that in Luke 22. He said, not my will, but your will be done. So he knew what the will was the will of his Father. And and that was that eschatological objective that was placed in front of him. And so as he went through that gruesome moment that evening, uh, he had to recalibrate his mind and get back on the path so that he could experience persevering grace to endure that moment. And he did that by reestablishing what the objective was. That's why the objective for any worthy relationship is important. If you have that aim in view, and every now and then you'll have to dust it off and maybe even tweak it a little bit as you mature, but you always want to be focused on it because the proper goal emboldens and encourages us to endure There's another verse in Scripture that I want to share with you because many of you are familiar with this, and that is Philippians 1.6. And this is where Paul was saying, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so as you hear that verse... You hear this eschatological, there there is a goal in mind. There is a completion day, the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, Paul could write with incredible confidence that what God began, he is going to finish. And so there is this objective in mind. Same idea, if you want to endure, you have to have the right goal in view. There's another one in 1 Corinthians 1.8. If you read with this framework in mind, this hermeneutic in mind, uh, you will see uh, how this is laced in many scriptures because that's the essence of faith. You see, faith 
Faith is an object. Our faith is an object. Christ is our faith. He's the object of our faith. And our faith is only as strong as the object that we have in view. And so there's always this this picture that we are looking at that creates the endurance and perseverance that uh, uh, permits us to work through whatever difficulties there are. And so when Paul was writing to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 1.8, he said this. He said, Jesus will sustain you to the end, the eschatological view in mind. Paul knew what the view was. He knew how this was going to end. He knew where they were going to land eventually. And so he said with confidence that Jesus will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, very similar to what he said in Philippians 1.6. My point here is, is that we have to establish the right goal, and with the right goal placed out there in the future, then it will give us the persevering grace It will give us the humility, the endurance to be able to work through the complexity, and and we can do that with joy and calmness of soul, and we can eventually experience the fruition of of that thing that we were hoping uh, to get to. Let me give you a cheesy illustration, and that's a, a driving illustration because that's something that most of us have done. When you're sitting in a vehicle and engaging those around you in the present tense. You're living in your present tense world, driving, holding the steering wheel. But as you're doing that, you're also looking toward the future. You have one eye on the destination. I said it was a cheesy illustration, but it kind of pictures what I'm talking about here. You're living in the present tense, but it's not as though you're detached of the destination. And so you're looking out over the hood And so as you enjoy what is going on in the vehicle with others, you're also heading toward a place, and that's what our relationships are with my cheesy illustration. We enjoy and benefit from each other in the present tense, but we have to have a future goal in mind. I think that's one of the reasons people just muddle through life, is that they don't have a goal. They don't have anything in view And so they just live day to day. And there's no zeal in that, no zest. There's no optimism in that. There's no working toward something that makes all the moments, the present tense moments, fun, worthy, hard, complex, but yet enduring and persevering and and full of grace. I want to share with you uh, an illustration. Uh, This is a true story. It was a picture that I shared with Lucia when, uh, during our dating relationship. And so as we were moving toward marriage and it looked like this thing was really getting real, I began talking to her about uh, what that would look like when we're 85, 85 years old. And so here's the story that I told her some, at this point, oh, 20, 20 almost 30 years ago. I said that here we are, we're 85 years old, we're sitting in I'm sitting in a a rocking chair in a living room with a fireplace with a knitted blanket over my lap. It's wintertime. I'm staring out the plate glass window uh, at a tree with no leaves on it, and there is a bird that is going from limb to limb on the leafless tree. And I'm sitting there in this warm living room, warm blanket with warm fire. Lucia's in the kitchen doing Lucia's stuff, as she always does, and just mulling around and then milling around. And then she 
comes into the living room, and neither one of us have said anything to each other, and she brings a cup of hot chocolate, and she hands it to me, and then she takes her right hand, and she puts it on my right shoulder. Now I'm holding the coffee, and now she's staring out the window with me, looking at that bird hopping on that barren limb in that living room with the fireplace going. And in that entire scene, there's not a word that's been said. But yet there have been a zillion words said in that moment. Uh, At that moment in our life, we have become almost totally assimilated, that we're thinking very similar thoughts, that we're enjoying the same thing. She's reading my mind as she brings the hot chocolate in. And there's so much richness in that scene that, that words sometimes can get in the way. And it's not necessary uh, because we have spent our years moving in that direction to the fullness of spiritual and physical intimacy that two people can enjoy. And so that was the picture that I presented to her as we were thinking about making it real and getting married shortly before our marriage. And so it was creating a goal. It was an illustration of of what our marriage could be so that when we got married, hopefully, which we did, that we can begin continue to embark on what we were building in our dating relationship, continue to embark on in our marriage. Well, unfortunately, we got married. <laughs> we, got, we got married. Uh, and then it was two sinners in a box, 24-7. Uh, she came into my box, my little house, and, and we were living together. And, and then uh, we created three more sinners, and now it's five sinners in a box living 24-7. We couldn't get away from each other. And, and we kind of lost view of the prize. We kind of got off track. And that that picture, which the picture was just a, a, another way of saying, of just illustrating uh, what Christ and the church looks like between a man and a woman. How a man and a woman can glorify God by by evolving, transforming into a picture of Christ in the church. That's the theological undergirding for the illustration that I gave you. But after we got married, uh, we had no sin plan. And so when we were dating, it was easy because we could break up every day, and I could let her out at her parents' house, and I'd go to my house, and then we'd come back the next day. And so there was this daily breakup where we could get away from each other, but then we got married, and now it's two sinners in a box, and we bring three more sinners in the box. Now it's five sinners in a box, and, and, and we have no sin plan, and then sin happens, and there's no plan to work through it. We don't have a way of navigating through our problems, and after a while, the, the picture that we were looking at becomes so obscure, it becomes so m- muddied and sullied by what we were doing to each other that we lost focus. And so in God's mercy to us, we came to a place to where we repented. I have written about that, and that, that those resources are on our website. But as we came to a place of repentance, realizing that we got off course, that, that we, lost the, we lost the thread, as they say uh, these days, we lost the mission. Uh, 
And so we begin to repent and begin to recalibrate our mission. We begin making adjustments so that we could reach that goal. And again, the goal, which I gave you an illustration, it was really becoming a more explicit representation of Christ and his church. I mean, if you're going to create an aim for a marriage, then that is the aim, an explicit representation of Christ and the church, which I tried to illustrate as I shared that story with her in our dating days. And so if your marriage or relationship, for that matter, if it's in a bad spot and you really want to change course, I want to give you a few tips that I trust that will help you Uh, to actually do that. And so if you're in a good spot where both partners can talk with each other, then you want to take advantage of that humility that you have today, and you want to begin addressing what should happen to recalibrate your relationship. And I say that both partners have to be engaged because what happens so often, because we don't mature at the same speed, the same pace, even the same season. And so one person is ready to go, the other one is not. And I realize that could be true in many of the relationships of people that are listening to this. But in order for this to happen, both people have to be ready to go. And if that humility is present in both people's lives, then you can begin to address what should happen and you can begin to recalibrate the relationship. And so the first thing that you want to do if you're both at that starting place of humility is you want to agree on a marriage mission statement. Now that's essential. And the marriage mission statement is really the goal, the thing that you're heading toward. Now that goal has to have something to do with glorifying God. We want this relationship to glorify God. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever it is, Paul said, uh, you do for the glory of God. And so so God's fame, you want to make God's name great. And that's what I mean in this context by glorifying God. You, you just want to spread the name of Jesus. You want, you, you want to make his name look great in this relationship. And so ultimately, now you can word that any way that you want, but that's the label that has to be wrapped around whatever words that you choose. Now, if you are married... Glorifying God in your marriage means becoming more like Christ in His church. So that when people see you, interact with you too, uh, they will experience, like, this is what Christ in the church looks like. They love each other. Uh, They encourage each other, engage each other. Uh, They're responsible toward each other. I mean, Christ and the church. There's this reciprocal, wonderful relationship that just leaves me feeling like this is some human illustration of what Christ and the church looks like. And so if you're married, then that mission statement uh, has to, in order to glorify God, uh, has to have something to do with becoming more like Christ and the church. And if that is the goal that you're aiming toward, I promise you God will give you persevering grace Uh, to get to that point. Now, you may want to word your mission statement, I mean, however you wish. It's 
it's your words, your lives, your thoughts. Uh, but again, it has to be some version of glorifying God by, by becoming more like Christ and His church if you are married. Now, if you're not married, it's just what does glorifying God in this relationship looks, looks like. All right, so with that in view, I want to give you uh, eight essentials to help you to recalibrate your relationship, and then we'll wrap up. And I want to give you these in sequential order, okay? And so there's eight essential tips that you need to recalibrate any relationship, assuming that both persons are are ready and willing to invest in this relationship and do the hard work of recalibration so that you can get it back on the right track, heading to the right goal so that you can persevere uh, with grace and mutual satisfaction where you can really benefit from the relationship. And of course, God's fame will continue to be spread as, as people begin to benefit because of this cohesiveness and unity that you have with each other. So eight sequential steps. Number one is prayer. Now, I know that that sounds obvious because it it is obvious, but prayer is a non-negotiable for helpless folks. And so it's important that you recognize yourself as a helpless person because there are some people that will come into this kind of recalibrating, and they're still confident in their self-reliance. They're still confident that they can do it their way, and they just need to bend the other person to their way. And there is not this brokenness. There's not a sense of helplessness. Uh, in my hands, I, I bring nothing, uh, but, but I, I cling to you, God. I need you. And so there is a helplessness in the attitude, in the inflection, in the words that we say which only leads to one conclusion, that I need to pray. Now, besides that, it's also important to know that nobody can change themselves and nobody can change anyone else without God's initiation, and so we need to talk to God. The prayerless person will try to change themselves by lifting themselves up by their own bootstraps and and other self-reliant means and metaphors, and they will also, again, try to bend the other person to do whatever it is they want them to do. So that's not a prayerful, prayerful soul. That is a self-reliant soul. And they don't really believe that change happens by God's initiation. They believe that change happens through their initiation primarily. And so, therefore, they are the change agent primarily. And so they're not praying. And so though prayer is obvious as a first step, And I get that, but it's essential to know why. Number two, after prayer, appeal, appeal, make an appeal. Building building a relationship will not work, as I said earlier, unless both partners are willing to engage the problems with humility and a desire to change. Now, it could be that the appeal that you need to make at this point uh, is not to the other person because the other person is not willing. Because again, I think the majority of relationships, the other person is not willing or not as willing as you are. And again, there's there's almost always a staggering when it comes to reconciling relationships where one person is more eager than the other. And so maybe the appeal is not to the other person, but the appeal is vertical rather than horizontal. Perhaps you need to ask God to give you the grace and give you the courage to approach this other person 
in this case study that I'm doing here, the person that you want to approach is your your spouse. And so you need to spend, now this is a specific kind of, of prayer. Point number one was prayer. But now point number two is appeal. And maybe you need to appeal to God first to give you the courage and the grace, the words, the insight to be able to, uh, or, or the patience and the perseverance to wait until you can make that horizontal appeal to uh, the other individual. So number two is to make an appeal. Now, if you are ready and you believe the other person is willing, then you want to make that appeal to them and let's get started. So prayer, appeal. Number three, enlist. Let another friend or two know about what you're up to. This concept here is what I call pre-accountability. You let them know what you're about to do. Accountability is letting someone know what you are doing and you want them to hold you accountable. Well, this is before you start the process, so it's pre-accountability. One of the benefits of pre-accountability because sometimes we can say that we're going to do something and we just say it to ourselves. And then we start the process, but we didn't tell anybody. And so if, if things start becoming difficult or complex, we can just stop and nobody knows about it because there's no accountability. But with pre-accountability, you're telling someone, this is what we're going to do, and we want to bring you in on the situation so that you can pray with us, so that you can ask us good questions as we move forward. And so number three is enlist. And so these first three things that I've given you is gathering your team, prayer, appeal, and then enlist. And those three things is addressing yourself, uh, talking to God, uh, potentially making an appeal to the other person, and then having other people for pre-accountability purposes. So now you've gathered a, a community. There's a lot of things that you can do by yourself, but sanctification is not one of them, and so we need to gather our team. Now, number uh, the second uh, category here, which is point number four, uh, it's under assess yourself. So now you want to assess yourself, and point number four is responsibility. So you have prayer, appeal, enlist, and then number four under assessing yourself is responsibility. And so you have to think through what you must do to change. You, have to, you, you want to address the log in your eye first. Now, possibly, if, if the other person is able to steward vulnerable confessions, then you want to confess those things to the other individual. Now, again, you have to uh, you have to think through that because if you have a staggered relationship where the other person is not willing or mature enough or they're still angry or manipulative or whatever, unkind in whatever ways, you, you can't share vulnerably to that kind of person because you're speaking to a fool. But you have a responsibility before you begin addressing them to address yourself because we are culpable We've done things in the relationship, and so we want to go to God. And, and, and basically what we're saying is what David said in Psalm 51.10, Create in me a clean heart, O God. And so we're asking God to create a clean heart in us by addressing our issues. And it could be because the other person is not willing to have this kind of mature, humble engagement that the only person that you can have this transactional conversation with is with God, because again, the relationship is not ready for this. They can't handle your truth, and that's okay. And for those on podcasts, I'm using air quotes here because ultimately it's not okay, but that's where you are. 
but that doesn't prohibit you from addressing your heart. Even if the other person is unwilling, you can make personal changes in your life. So number four is responsibility. And then number five is insight. This is where you ask God to give you clarity on how to help your spouse or help the other person to become untangled from their sin, their bad habits, their inconsistencies, or other matters that need God's intervention. And so you want uh, insight from God. You want God to give you insight into what is going on in their lives so that you can be on God's restoration team. Galatians 6.1 if anyone is caught in a transgression, you are spiritual, restore them. And so it's like, God, you have created a clean heart or you're in process of creating a clean heart in me. And so now I want to be on your redemption team, your restoration team. And so give me insight so I can cooperate with you in helping this person as you are helping me. I want to show them a similar mercy that you have shown to me. So number five of eight essentials is insight, specifically insight into the other person. Then number six is implement. As the Lord provides insight into your spouse's struggles, you do want to be a cooperating secondary causal agent in your spouse's life, cooperating with God in the restoration process. So it's not just gathering insight, but it's also implementation. And so God will use you as, as his hands and feet. And, and mouthpiece in this person's life. And so there is an implementation aspect as he gives you insight into that other person. And so you're taking on personal responsibility. Number four, you're creating a clean heart in yourself. Number five, you're gaining insight into the person that you want to cooperate with God in the restoration of that individual. Number six, now you want to implement as God gives you that insight. And so you come alongside them. Then number seven, you're both working together. And number seven, I, I call it focus. Whatever your mission statement is that you have scripted out, you always keep it top of mind. You talk about it regularly. You make all the needed adjustments to keep it moving. I, our mission statement of glorifying God by becoming more like Christ in his church, I illustrated with sitting in the rocker chair, rocking chair in the living room, watching the bird drinking a hot chocolate with a knitted blanket. That was just a, a picture. That, that's just a movie of a deeper thought of what Christ in the church looks like, and that it ultimately glorifies God. And so you can script out a movie if you want, uh, but whatever your mission statement is, number seven, you have to focus. Keep it at top of mind. You talk about it regularly, making adjustments as needed. Then number eight is perseverance. With humility motivating your heart, your words will have the seasoning of grace that encourage each other to continue in the process, and you will find persevering grace through the process if you work uh, in, in implementing the things that I've been sharing with you. So number eight is perseverance with humility, motivating your heart. Your words will have the seasoning of grace that encourage each other to continue in the process. This is episode 432, The Secret 
to having a great marriage that lasts. The secret is that eschatological component to it, the right aim, the biblical aim. And with that aim fixated out there, I'm focused on it, and God will use that as a gravitational pull through whatever complexity and hardships that you will have in your relationships. Let me wrap up with a few questions. Number one, what is the goal of your relationship? What is the goal of your relationship? If it's a marriage or whatever relationship you have been thinking about over the last little bit here, uh, what is the goal? What is that eschatological objective out there? What do you hope it will be like? What do you hope the relationship will be like uh, if you all were to be together in five years, ten? If you're younger, if you were to be together for another 40 years, what do you hope that relationship will be like? That's another way of asking what is your goal. Number two, does your spouse agree with you? Does this other person agree with you? How do you know? Will you ask them? Are you able to have that conversation? Again, realizing the staggering effect where one person may not be willing, but if there's a possibility of willingness, are you willing uh, to ask them? Do they agree with the objective, the eschatological objective of your relationship? Number three, if you do not have a solid mission statement, will you address what I have laid out here and start crafting one and then begin the process of moving toward that good outcome? And then finally, number four, there are many folks that are listening to this and they have someone, I mean, many of these folks have the other person is not willing to engage at this level. And that is very sad. And if this is your situation, then you must begin working on, on three of the first four steps that I laid out. Praying, talking to God, having a praying friend, enlisting other people who will hold you accountable, and then doing whatever you can do. Responsibility, you remember. I believe that was number four. And so you pray, you enlist, and then responsibility, and you begin to change yourself. Romans 10, 18, you, you do what depends on you to live peaceably with all people. There's some things you can't do, but there's some things that depend on you. And then in James 4, 17, if you know to do good, and if you don't do it, then James says that would be sin. And so if you're in this place where the other person is not willing to go with you in this process of what I just laid out, then do the first three of four things that I did lay out, pray, enlist a friend, and do the work that you can do to change yourself. If you want to read all about this, again, go to episode 432, The Secret to Having a Great Marriage That Lasts. Uh, I've also written a book called Change Me, The Ultimate Life Change Handbook. You can find this on Amazon, and I would encourage you, this could be an excellent supplemental tool, especially, well, if you're doing this by yourself, it will be outstanding, and it would be great if you could work through this with the other person. We've had a lot of excellent feedback uh, from folks who have used it personally, uh, also have used it in small groups, and have used it in discipleship counseling and have used it in marriages and so in any relational context or just using it by yourself 
to change, uh, I recommend, highly recommend Change Me, the Ultimate Life Change Handbook. Welcome to our coffee shop, lifeovercoffee.com. Please share our resources with your friends. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.